Welcome to Homestead Gardening in the Texas Gulf Coast with Kristen Howard. One misconception people have about gardening is that it's a lot of work. This isn't true, but we currently live in a fast-paced society that wants instant results, and we try to manipulate things to get what we want when we want it. The more we intervene in our garden, the less likely we'll actually get the results we want. This is because, usually, gardeners don't understand the soil microbial network and accidentally disturb it with more and more intervention. The overuse of certain chemical fertilizers, fungicides, herbicides, pesticides, and a failure to add sufficient organic matter upon which these microbes feed, and heavy tillage will contribute to the destruction of a soil microbial network. As a landscape professional in the industry for over a decade, you'd think I would have left college knowing how to care for a plant. The truth is, I had no clue how to keep plants alive. Sure, I checked the box for a soils class, learning the basics of geology, and I attended many horticultural classes above and beyond what was required for my degree, but not one class explained what healthy soil was, what healthy plant roots should look like, and why any of this mattered for plant health. I assumed that all dirt was soil and all soil was dirt. I didn't understand that soil was alive and could support living plants or that it could die and turn into dirt, which wouldn't really support much of anything except maybe some scrappy weeds. I didn't understand that the healthier the soil, not just the healthier my plant could be, but the more nutrient dense the food my plant would grow for me because healthy soil allows a plant to properly take in and store nutrients. So what's the bigger picture? What does this mean to you? Well, healthier soil grows healthier plants, healthier plants require less pest control and fertilization, and a healthy plant is capable of producing a more nutrient-dense harvest. This is our main goal as gardeners. This is why we spend time and money to grow our gardens and choose our garden's produce over grocery store produce. We care about the nutrient density of our plants as it relates to our own health. We want to be healthy, but for our garden to give us the health we desire, we have to understand that our health actually starts with our plant's soil health. What if I told you that if you can understand and harness the potential of your garden soil biology, you'll be equipped to grow a healthier garden that takes less time and less money each season as it grows? That's what this episode aims to do. In this episode, I'll help you become a root-focused gardener. Not to be confused with a root crop gardener, a root-focused gardener prioritizes the health of the plant roots first. We'll discuss the difference between dirt and soil, and why you should care about which one you have in your garden. I'll also share with you what soil microbes are and how they relate to your plant. I'll let you in on a few secrets on how to find out if you have good microbes in your soil to begin with, how to add essential microbes, and how to foster these microbes once you do have them in your soil. Finally, we'll discuss soil health versus soil fertility and how to improve your fertilization methods so you can use less fertilizer in your garden by focusing first on creating healthy soil for your plants. Dirt versus soil. Why should you care if you have dirt or soil? At the end of this segment, you'll understand why you should care, but it helps to start out by knowing the difference between dirt and soil. So what is the difference and how can you tell? Well, dirt is dead. There's no other way to say it. Dirt may be wet or dry, contain weeds or be bare, but definitively, dirt is not alive. It does not contain living organisms, or even if it did at once, some aspect of the soil profile was compromised, causing those living organisms to die off and turn into dirt. 
Soil, on the other hand, is comprised of minerals, air, water, and organic matter. If you are missing one of these elements, the delicate balance of your soil will be thrown off, and that soil is at risk of turning into dirt. For example, in a drought, which, by the way, droughts don't just happen in the heat, they can also happen in the cool weather. In a drought, your soil can lose moisture, which will start to kill off living organisms in your soil. If your soil is trampled and compacted, the open pore space between soil minerals is removed, which will damage your soil due to the lack of air. Living organisms need air and water, just like we do, and this is why healthy soil is described as light and fluffy, well-draining and moist. Healthy soil is basically Goldilocks's choice for porridge. It has to be just right. How do you know if you have soil or dirt without a soil test? Can a soil test tell you if your soil is healthy at all? Even if soil tests measure organic matter, they may not be painting a full, accurate picture of what's happening. In a world full of technology and science, we forget how intuitive we are as humans. You already intuitively know how to tell the difference between soil and dirt, but maybe you need some reassurance and guidance, and that's what I'm here to do. For most people these days, we all live in a developed area. These areas may be a city or suburb, or we may live in the country with a developed homestead. In that way, we all have things in common. Most of us have built infrastructure or structures on our properties. Engineers and architects have goals that are very different from our goals as gardeners. An engineer wants the non-limbing structure to stay put. They want it to last as long as possible without changing. In order to make sure our home foundations, barn slabs, pools, patios, roads, and utilities stay in place and last as long as possible, these structures must be prioritized. Healthy soil that's cushioned and light and well-draining is disadvantageous to these structures. We don't want to spend a considerable amount of our hard-earned money on a structure and then build that structure on soil that will unevenly settle and destroy the efforts of construction. So what do our engineers do? They bring in dirt, sand, or rock and compact it so our structure will remain sturdy. The problems in the language used to describe this. They call it soil, and they describe the soil structure as angular when what is actually being described and used isn't soil at all. It doesn't contain living organisms. It's actually dead. I believe the language use by engineers and architects is part of the problem and creates the misunderstanding of what constitutes living soil versus dirt. This misunderstanding may lead you as a gardener to plant something right next to your new structure in the compacted dead dirt and not understand what happened to your plant after it dies. Or worse, if you plant something in a really well-made hole, meaning you dug a big hole, you put your plant in it, you backfilled with really healthy soil and compost, but then suddenly a couple years later your plant doesn't seem to be doing well or it's never growing bigger than that hole, well, usually this is a case where the soil surrounding your hole isn't soil at all. It's actually dirt or compacted dirt, which is much, much worse, creating a tiny little area where your plant roots can grow and then these hard walls that they can't cross. This is actually what I encounter professionally the most, especially among new home construction. So how do you know what you have, soil or dirt? And how do you fix the problem? To identify if you have soil or dirt, you can absolutely engage a lab and pay for a soil test. However, you can also evaluate this on your own. You'll just need to use a few of your five senses. Visual cues. 
If you live in a newly developed area, assume infrastructure and the structures on it were prioritized. It's a good assumption that you do not have a lot of good quality soil on your property if this is the case. If you live in a highly urban area that floods or holds water, you may assume compaction and nutrient or mineral washout is possible, and therefore you too may not have healthy soil. You may also have toxins that have washed into your soil in this case, and unfortunately, testing centers like Texas AgriLife Extension can't test for that. If you live in an area that drains well with a sandier soil, this doesn't mean you have healthy soil right off the bat. Just because that soil structure has air and maybe even some water present doesn't mean that it contains organic material. And you do need that organic component and some moisture in that soil structure, even if it drains well, so that the good microbes can survive. I'll describe how to fix some of these common issues in just a bit. Olfactory senses. Your smell and taste are closely connected, but I'd prefer you use your nose over your taste buds to retrieve information about your soil. When my soil doesn't drain well and it's compacted, I can smell some algae buildup on the surface, especially after too much rain or in areas that have standing water frequently. This smells a lot like a stagnant pond, but my healthy soil should smell like a fresh spring day. Just a side note, smelling healthy soil will lighten people's moods. This is because good microbes in the soil can actually stimulate serotonin production, and this is why gardening hobbies are recommended for the elderly, the depressed, and people recovering from an illness or surgery. Even if you don't have a perfect nose for sniffing and detecting healthy soil, you should feel ready to tackle the world's problems after a week of working closely with healthy soil. I tell many people that winter is the best time to start a garden, and I'm not wrong, but the side benefit of winter bed building, or even keeping a small garden like cover crops over the winter, is that it can help alleviate holiday stress and seasonal blues. I tell the story all the time, but when I was too weak to physically garden, I started out just pulling weeds 15 minutes a day. It was physically and emotionally challenging at first. I hated the time I spent doing that because I had bigger dreams to restart my full vegetable garden. But after a week of this chore, my mood and outlook started to improve. I had been uprooting weeds along with soil microbes for an entire week. Plus, something as simple as pulling weeds provided me a visual measurement of accomplishment, which had its own value. For more information and suggestions on gardening to improve mood, I have an entire free episode devoted to that with a guest speaker. But for now, let's get back on track and discuss how to identify your soil. Sense of touch. The texture of your soil should be very telling, too. As mentioned, soil and soil texture are not the same things. Your dirt can have a soil texture, but not be living soil. We've been told there are three soil textures, and I'm sure you've heard of them, sand, loam, and clay. And the garden soil we're going for is going to feel something like a spongy loam. You should be able to squeeze it when it's moist and it won't stick together or immediately fall apart. Purchased garden soil blends will have some sand, some silt, and clay particles, along with organic matter. And that's an important addition you need to look for. If you've had a vegetable garden for a long time, your garden soil may have a lot more organic material than if you were just starting out. This is because gardeners typically like to add organic matter like compost year after year to continue to aid in our moisture retention and keep the soil alive. This is not to say that you should build your garden beds only with compost. Compost is expensive, and there's no logical reason why you should construct your garden beds with 100% compost. The benefit of starting with a loam soil is that you have those sand, silt, and clay particles to give the soil its structure. Those small inner workings of the bed 
maintains some airspace and places where water can stay so the plant roots can breathe and the soil can maintain a moisture content. Compost alone is going to have too much moisture and it can actually compact a little bit too easily over time as it ages. This will negatively impact your garden a couple years down the road, but leave you scratching your head and probably adding more compost trying to fix the problem. When I top my bed seasonally with compost, it's for a purpose. Usually I'm trying to fill in the gaps that removed plants like my root vegetables, carrots, radishes, and beets may have created. Sometimes that compost is used just to suppress a cover crop that was cut down and left as green manure. The compost should have a purpose when you add it into your existing beds. If you don't need to add compost, don't add it. As a side note, Houston gardeners may want to add compost two times a year at minimum. We have year-round gardening in Houston, so we should start the new seasons off right. Usually I find gaps in my seasons around August and maybe December or January where my soil is struggling a little bit and maybe even turning to dirt, especially during a winter drought or a summer drought if I'm not able to keep up with my garden at those times. And I'll add compost then. But any month where I think my garden is struggling and my soil is struggling, I might add compost and that's okay. So can you fix dirt and turn it back into soil? Of course. It may be a bit more complicated depending on what the dirt's present condition is. Compacted areas, for example, usually do not have healthy soil and are identified as areas that don't drain well, have standing water, have water that runs off, or are just flat out dry. Compacted areas require a few solutions to fix. Often these areas have too much clay, but the solution isn't necessarily to add sand and turn them into loam. And I think people believe that if you add some sand to clay, it will solve a lot of problems, but this is a misconception and don't just assume this right away as the correction. Ideally to fix compacted dirt areas with clay or not, you wanna aerate the affected area, which means to get air into that area. Aeration opens the structure and allows both water and air to get in, which are necessary components for organic matter to live. One way to fix compacted areas is to till that area. Tilling is pretty discouraged. This is because tilling healthy soil will destroy a healthy network of microorganisms, which we'll talk about in just a bit. But if the area has dead dirt, then tilling won't destroy the organic living organisms because they're not present in that dirt, but what tilling might do is toss up the dead, dry dirt and allow it to be carried away by the wind and displaced. This is more or less what happened with the Dust Bowl. There is a wide range of what may be described as tilling, and for all you know, you may be tilling on accident and not mean to. You may see tillers as this large self-propelled machine, but tilling is also done easily by hand with a spade. If you're churning your soil by hand with a small spade or some sort of little tool, this is also a type of tilling. Now, tilling is the fastest way to decompact soil, which is why so many people still do it. If you are going to till an area, you must add compost and water that area to turn it back into soil and mix that compost in. You can aerate in a less invasive way though, and I prefer some of these other methods for dirt areas and areas that already have grass and living plants established. One way is to cover crop with a puncturing crop that needs very little support, like a daikon radish. But a quicker way is to puncture the soil or core out the soil mechanically, and then top the open depressions you've made in those areas with organic matter, like compost. 
water that area, as I've already mentioned, so it can restore itself back into a living soil network. This puncturing or coring of the soil still will take a longer time than tilling to restore itself back into soil because the organic additions take time to change the entire soil profile in those areas that were not punctured. The compost is not mixed into those areas like it would have been with tilling. If your soil or dirt is draining too well and water is not just running off, but your plants are still struggling to grow, it is likely you have a sandy soil structure. It's pretty obvious if you have more sand in your soil or in your dirt. But just as I mentioned earlier, adding more sand to a clay to try to create loam does not automatically mean your dirt is turning into a healthy living soil. And the same goes in the opposite direction. Soil structure and soil are different things. Even a sandy soil structure can be improved through the addition of compost to add organic living matter and hold water better while still draining easily. In existing gardens where you have a perfect loam soil structure, it's not compact, but your bed is starting to dry out too easily or water appears to bead on the surface of your soil and will no longer infiltrate, well, this means that your soil profile is turning into dirt. Adding compost to a hydrophobic soil, meaning a soil that is repelling water, will help the soil to infiltrate the water, which means to take in that water. In this case, you can't top the bed with compost to fix the soil. You have to work the compost into the soil profile because the soil is turning to dirt and you've either begun to lose or have completely lost the organic matter that was once present in those areas. So hand mixing compost into dirt with a hand tool is called working the compost into the soil. You can also use your fingers if you prefer to not work with tools. As mentioned before, I'm arguing that this is still a form of tilling, but it may be necessary to save your soil and save the organic network. So the question always is, how much compost do I need to fix this issue? Well, typically you will take an inch of compost and work it into four inches of the existing dirt or soil profile. If your bed is deeper, you can use more compost, two inches worked into six to eight inches. Some gardeners are not going to agree that you should mix your compost into your existing garden beds. But I just want to be clear, this is a specific case. If you know that your soil is hydrophobic, meaning water is beating off or running off, we have a major problem and we have to fix that as quickly as possible. If you have healthy soil or a healthy garden bed and you're topping with compost, this is not the case where you would mix it in. Simply adding a compost layer on top is all you would need to do if you need to add compost at all. In this case, a good time to add compost would be at the end of a season when you've cut down a lot of your plants and you're still left with a few stumps in the garden you wanna cover up. Covering these stumps up with compost in this case will help break them down and adds a lot of value in general. Because your soil underneath this extra compost layer that you're adding is not hydrophobic and it's healthy, it's going to take in all of those extra microbes, all of that extra support from the compost layer correctly take it in, in other words, and topping is all you need to do. If you mix in your compost at this stage in your healthy soil areas, you actually are gonna destroy the soil network, the microbial network rather, that you're trying to support. So just understand, the solution is for unhealthy soil or hydrophobic soil. In other words, soil that you thought was soil that actually is turning to dirt or already there. 
adding compost in a situation where you already have healthy soil does not require any mixing or manipulation by you unless you see a few problem areas. So if you've successfully revived your dirt and turned it back into soil, or if you already have healthy soil, it should hold water, drain well, smell fresh, and be dark in color, indicating the presence of rich organic matter. To sum up this section, you should care if you have dirt or soil because healthy living soil supports plant life and can maintain the health of a plant. Healthier plants are more capable of fighting diseases, fungus, and pests with less intervention from you as the gardener and caretaker. Less time caring and less money spent on reactive curing measures means your garden may eventually become an affordable hobby when compared to grocery store produce and allows you to have time to do other things in your busy life. In my case, that extra time is spent using all of the gifts the garden provides so they don't go to waste. Soil microbes. Soil microbes each play a role in soil health and plant health. Some of these good soil microbes include bacteria, fungi, microscopic protozoa, and nematodes. I think there's a fifth thing, but I can't pronounce it. <laughs> I'm just gonna be honest about that. These microbes assist with nitrogen fixation for plants, nutrient uptake in plants, pathogen suppression, stress reduction, and the decomposition of organic matter. Microbes in the soil relate to the microbes found in our own human gut. We can have bad microbes like bad bacteria in our soil, just like we can have bad microbes like candida yeast in our gut. Both of these bad types of microbes can wreak havoc and upset the balance in those systems. What we eat can positively or negatively impact our gut health and this microbe network, and what we feed our soil can do the same for it. You may have heard this gut microbe network referred to as a microbiome, and if we upset the balance by destroying good microbes in this microbiome, allowing bad microbes to populate and get out of control, we are at risk for mysterious illness. If we eradicate the soil microbial network or cause it to become imbalanced, our plants are at risk for mysterious illness as well. Without healthy soil, the plant's ability to fight off infection and disease is at a low. Unhealthy soil will upset the balance the plant needs to be well and thrive. But if we can leverage our soil health, we can shift the balance in our plant's favor. And this benefits us as gardeners as well. Let's explore the soil microbial network further. This network is the most interesting topic I've discovered as a gardener. After learning about it and understanding this network, I changed the way I thought about gardening and became an intuitive gardener. I learned how to work with nature and let it take the lead. I started working less and less in the garden and having more and more reward. One misconception people have about gardening is that it's a lot of work. This actually isn't true, but we currently live in such a fast-paced society. We want instant results. We try to manipulate everything to get what we want when we want it. I like to think about this in terms of driving in traffic. You may notice that a lot more people get into traffic accidents during the peak times of traffic when they're driving in a way that doesn't make a ton of sense. This is because they are trying to manipulate their bad situation, being stuck in traffic. They switch lanes abruptly. They try to move two or three car lengths ahead of the person that was in front of them before, all for truly nothing. Or in some cases, they get into a traffic accident and delay their journey even further. Think about this when we talk about gardening especially when we're talking about intervention. The more we intervene in our garden, the less likely we'll actually get the results we want. Sometimes we get worse results. And this is because usually gardeners don't understand the soil microbial network and accidentally disturb it with more and more intervention. 
the overuse of certain chemical fertilizers, fungicides, herbicides, pesticides, a failure to add sufficient organic matter upon which all of these things feed, and heavy tillage will contribute to the destruction of a soil microbial network. If instead, the soil microbial network was not just maintained, but prioritized and supported by us as gardeners, we'd actually not need as much fertilizer, fungicides, herbicides, pesticides, or need to till our gardens at all. The addition of organic matter and light fertilizing with very specific intentions should be all you need to be successful as a gardener. Next month, I'm going to dedicate one, possibly more episodes just to pests in the garden and companion planting. There's a few secrets a lot of gardeners don't know about pests. And the truth is, <laughs> a lot of pests aren't pests at all. They're good bugs. A very low percentage is actually bad bugs in our garden. But if you use pesticides, for instance, you're not going to discriminate which bugs are being killed. You're going to kill all of them, or most of them, even some good bugs. So keep this in mind when we continue to talk about intervention. The good news is that if you know what to look for and what to do, you can fix the soil network and maintain it. Now, there are several different types of microbes in the soil that I've mentioned. Bacteria is one of them. Fungi is one of them. The only one you can really see with the naked eye is the fungi network. And this network is not the same as having mushrooms or growing mushrooms in your garden. If you're growing mushrooms in your garden soil, all this means is there's something in that soil that's breaking down that a specific type of fungus is feeding on. A fungi network is a little bit different. So this network is white, finely branched, and it's an organism of mycelium or mycorrhizal fungi if it's a soil microbe, not a mushroom. <laughs> it's clearly visible. It sometimes looks like plant roots or a little bit fuzzy. After all, it is a fungus, but it's a gorgeous fungus, and it should smell good too. And this contributes to the fresh-smelling, healthy soil mentioned earlier in this episode. I often see mycelium at a soil's surface if I put down filter fabric or mulch that keeps a lot of moisture right at that immediate surface. You should actually see it near living plant roots if it's deeper in the soil. It's not imperative to mulch your garden beds to maintain this network, and in fact, things like cover crops are more effective at creating a balance for the microbial network, especially mycorrhizal fungi, to keep that cycle going because they work together. With that said, you absolutely can mulch your beds, but if you're not using a mulch that breaks down really easily, then it doesn't really matter. It's not supporting that fungal network. For example, if I use cedar mulch or pine needles, these are not breaking down and feeding my microbes. They're not intended to break down actually, which is maybe why you want to use them in some cases to suppress weeds or make sure that you keep moisture on a tree that you're growing. But if you want mulch that breaks down as an added benefit to your garden, that's totally great. Do that for you. It's just not necessary if you have all the other components in your soil. Mycelium will actually form a bond with plant roots, which is why I mentioned that a cover crop may be more beneficial because it helps feed the plants. All of these soil microbes, in fact, create a symbiotic relationship with plant roots. They process nutrients to provide nitrogen, phosphorus, and other macro and micro nutrients to plants in a viable form that the plant roots can actually uptake. And that's very important. You may hear me harp sometimes about the benefits of organic fertilizers over synthetic fertilizers, 
but this is because synthetic fertilizers do not always have bioavailable contents. They're not always able to be broken down in such a way by microorganisms in order for plants to use them. Organic fertilizers are bioavailable to these microorganisms and the good microbes in the soil. And as these microbes digest nutrients and break down the components of the nutrients, the plant can take in the individual components of the nutrition, like the nitrogen and other micro and macro components. Just like humans taking probiotics, good bacteria and fungi will aid in the fermentation process and balance our microbiome, which allows us to properly absorb the nutrition from our food. If you've heard of leaky gut, this is an instance where bad fungus, like the candida yeast that I mentioned before, populates the stomach, it punctures holes in the lining of the stomach, and this causes nutrients to leak out into the body. Without the right absorption through the stomach, these nutrients are lost and unusable, but can also contribute to illness and inflammation in their unprocessed forms as they run around the bloodstream. In this case, good bacteria and fungi was unable to process these pieces of nutrition and turn them into fuel and vitamins so that the body could uptake it through the stomach lining, and the same concept can happen with unhealthy soil and plant roots. Plants that have access to healthy soil, teeming with good microbes and this fungi network like a healthy human gut with good bacteria and fungi from probiotics or other natural sources like unpasteurized milk, the soil and the plants begin to form a mutually beneficial relationship. The microbes support the plant roots and the roots support the microbes. The science behind this is a little higher level than I would like to discuss in a podcast, but basically we're talking about a classic example of symbiosis, where all involved are reaping the maximum benefit. I like to give movie examples, so to me this is like the relationship between all the living things in the movie Avatar. The Na'vi people in this movie live in harmony with nature and are connected to it in a very literal way. They form a bond with the natural environment, the people, and the animals around them. In the movie, the bond is destroyed and broken. When this bond is broken, there is suffering by the other living organisms or beings connected to the network. It may seem a little silly to describe a plant network by discussing a movie, but it's a really simple yet powerful visual that helps you understand the relationship better between some of these microbes you can't see and the connected relationship formed with the plant roots. I think seeing the destruction in the movie really helps to understand that it can't be repaired immediately. Earlier, we discussed that people like instant results these days, and they like to intervene in their garden. There are cases where you and your garden will benefit a lot more from zero intervention or selective intervention. If your plant dies, for instance, at the end of its season, should you remove the plant roots? Most people would say yes, because these roots are in the way of planting your next crop. But what if you left them in the ground? What would happen? In dirt, which is considered dead, these roots may not decompose. There's little, if any, natural microbes or bugs to decompose the roots and break down that material. In healthy living soil, however, microbes and bugs are waiting for the chance to gobble up decaying material. These bugs and microbes won't attack a living thing, but they know when something is dead and when there's decomposition. In soil, we have life and activity below the surface. These dead plant roots are being eaten up and turned into compost below that surface for free and with no effort by you. Anything above the soil surface may still be dead and undecayed, but if you want to slightly intervene at this point, you can cover up a plant stump with a little compost like I mentioned before. 
it will be devoured as well by this microbial network. Now, let's say you have healthy soil, but your plant dies at the end of the season, and this time, instead of leaving the roots and cutting the dead plant at the stump, you pull out the entire plant, roots and all. What happens in this scenario? That network that is formed around the roots is ripped out and destroyed. The garden doesn't get the benefit of natural decomposition below the soil surface, which forces you to add your own finished compost back into the beds, whether you plan to or not, to try to repair. So between the first choice, leaving everything alone and letting nature take its own course, and the second choice, intervening in your garden by ripping out the plant, which caused you to do more work initially? Which choice was more beneficial for your soil and future crops that will grow in that soil? And which choice potentially depleted your soil's health and may now cause you not to just do more work right now, but more work in the future to ensure the health of your future crops? The genius behind being a root-focused gardener is not just in growing a plant, but in avoiding the intervention even after a plant is dead and trusting that microbes below the soil surface are busy doing the hard work for you. So we know now that the microbes and fungi network and plant roots all form a bond. We know we don't want to break that bond because there's no advantage and arguably there is a disadvantage to our soil health. We also know that microbes benefit plant roots and the plants by making nutrients from organic matter bioavailable by breaking down those nutrients into their simplest forms of nitrogen, phosphorus, and so on. The question left is how does this relate to your fertilizing program? I mentioned gut health in humans and touched on how it relates to microbes in the soil and plant health. I've also mentioned leaky gut for a very specific reason. Just like we take vitamins to obtain nutrients that we may not get from our Western diet, we fertilize our plants. So let's get back to the idea of leaky gut to maybe understand this a bit better. If I take vitamin D, for instance, the vitamin D should be processed by a healthy gut and absorbed in the stomach so it can be used. In an unhealthy gut, that vitamin may be lost partially because it can't be processed or it's leaked through the stomach lining, as I've mentioned before, if you have a particular issue like that. And if you fertilize a plant that's not in healthy living soil, then it's very likely that fertilizer also isn't going to be processed. Therefore, it won't be taken up by the roots. And finally, it can leak out of the soil through runoff or washout, or in the case of nitrogen, just simple sun exposure. So if I'm vitamin D deficient, and then I take vitamin D, and I'm still vitamin D deficient, what am I likely to do? Probably take a lot more vitamin D. I probably won't immediately guess that I have a different problem than a vitamin D deficiency, such as a problem in my gut or a microbiome that's out of balance. And this is how we respond when it comes to our garden too. If our plant is yellowing and it's nitrogen deficient, we add nitrogen-rich fertilizer. If the plant is still yellow, that nitrogen doesn't seem to work, we think, oh, let's add more nitrogen. We don't think, ah, I have a soil problem with a lack of microbes that aren't processing the nitrogen fertilizer, and therefore the plants can't absorb that nitrogen. We just simply add more nitrogen and hope that it fixes the problem. Does that extra fertilizer hurt your soil? Well, experts say yes. I've already mentioned that the leaking of nutrients that aren't broken down into the wrong places like the bloodstream in the body causes problems. It usually causes inflammation, actually, that may contribute to other issues or illnesses. 
It's not illogical to believe that extra fertilizing can hurt the soil or your plants, or the fertilizer may simply leak out of the soil into other water sources. Even if you don't understand the plant and soil science, just by understanding the simple comparison between humans and soil health, you may see that relationship a little bit more. While we're comparing plants and humans, I want you to think about synthetic fertilizer as a processed apple-derived food product, let's call it applesauce, I don't know, and organic fertilizer as a whole apple. Both may contain the same nutrient profile as far as percentages of nutrition are concerned, but the body is likely to have an easier time digesting the whole apple than the processed food product. The same concept goes for synthetic and organic fertilizer. The synthetic fertilizer and the organic fertilizer may have the same percentages when it comes to nutrition, but the microbes will have an easier time processing the organic fertilizer than the synthetic. The takeaway is this, because synthetic fertilizer takes longer to break down than the organic fertilizer by these microbes, it may wash out of the soil a lot easier. And just because the microbes can't break a lot of that down, it means that less fertilizer is actually used by the plant. So sometimes we just apply more fertilizer to fix the problem. This wastes resources and valuable time as the plant gets sicker or less healthy. When I want to fertilize, I actually want results. And the quickest results is with organic fertilizer applied to plants growing in healthy soil. While organic fertilizer may be more expensive pound for pound, the plants can use all of the organic fertilizer, whereas the synthetic usually gets wasted, such that I argue buying organic doesn't really cost me more in the long run. So when it comes to fertilizing your plants, the point I want to make clear is that if your soil is healthy and your plant roots and soil microbes are forming a bond and a network, your organic fertilizing program can be at its optimum. You shouldn't have to work as hard to keep your plants alive. You shouldn't have to spend as much money as time goes on. And you should be a more successful gardener by proxy because a lot of things are doing the work for you. You do hard work early on to promote soil health and then just claim the credit for how healthy and great your plant is even if you don't do anything else to make sure the plant stayed healthy, besides be a good steward of your soil. So let's get smart as gardeners and make sure that we're root focused first. We need easy ways to add root support and microbial support to our soils before we even worry about fertilizing. I've chosen to invest in liquid essential microbes to boost my plant's health more than I've chosen to invest in fertilizer for my plants. Essential microbes are sometimes referred to as EM for short. Essential microbes can be used to inoculate your soil as a boost or as a repair method if you don't have access to a lot of fresh compost or space in your garden to add the compost. There are two ways to get essential microbes. You can culture your own and grow them, or you can purchase essential microbes already cultured. Creating a culture is possible using unpasteurized ingredients and other starter cultures. So if you have a milking animal or live near a raw milk dairy, you're halfway to culturing at home. However, if you don't have the ingredients at hand, purchasing them can be expensive and your culture can actually fail. You are culturing bacteria and fungus and other things in your home. I personally prefer to buy my essential microbes to cut out the likelihood that I'm going to create a stink bomb in my house. You can grow these essential microbes before adding them to your garden by feeding them or simply use them as part of your watering program. 
These microbes do feed on organic matter and scraps. So if you don't have any organic matter to begin with in your soil for them to feed on, it will be a little bit more difficult for them to multiply. I use Bokashi composting to grow and populate my kitchen scraps with essential microbes. These good microbes and fermented kitchen scraps go into my compost pile, teeming with good bacteria, and help to quickly decompose other organic matter in the pile, like leaves, grass, and other dead plants. Then I move partially decomposed matter filled with these microbes into my garden. I prefer to use a combination of finished compost and partially decomposed organic matter from my compost pile in my garden. Anything partially decomposed, I bury, and then I top my gardens with finished compost. Alternatively, I can use essential microbes as part of my watering program. I can water my soil directly with microbes and let these microbes feast on any organic matter still present in my garden soil. As a final thought, I'm gonna share with you what I do for my vegetable garden from start to finish, beginning with seed starting, so you can see where I intervene and how I promote soil health and how I fertilize. First of all, if I'm starting seeds indoors, sometimes I'm only starting difficult seeds, ones that might rot outside or there needs to be a certain timing for seed starting in order to make sure that I actually have a crop before the season ends outdoors. So in these cases, I start my seeds in a sterile soilless medium. This means it's not living. This is usually a peat moss mix. Seeds starting indoors can go sideways really quickly and these seeds can rot. So I wanna make sure that I'm not accidentally using soil that's living that can be overrun with bad bacteria or bad fungus. And this does happen a lot with seed starting because of the high humidity, temperature, and moisture that we're dealing with in this seed starting. And I'm mainly thinking about peppers, tomatoes, and eggplants that are a little bit more finicky with these issues. So starting with the soilless medium, is easier for me to prevent these concerns, these issues, these likelihoods that I will fail as a seed starter. After my seeds germinate though, I have to recreate the microbe network that I intentionally left out earlier. And I wanna make sure that I'm populating the growing medium with the good microbes only. This is where my liquid microbes called EM1 from Terraganics comes in. I use that Terraganics brand because they are the best on the market right now and they ship out of Texas so I get them really quickly when I order. I add these liquid microbes to my watering program and this promotes root growth and root health in the process. I like the Terraganics EM1 product so much that I became an affiliate so if you need a link and a discount code just reach out and I'll definitely get that for you. So my next step, once my baby plants have a full set of true leaves, which means two or more leaves growing after the initial seedling cotyledons, I fertilize them with an organic nitrogen-rich fertilizer called fish emulsion, along with my EM1. In my area, the Alaska brand fish emulsion is the only brand I can find at my local feed store. In other areas of the country, I've seen people use Neptune's Harvest. Just find something that makes sense for you that's organic, and keep in mind that when you use this, this is going to be a nitrogen-rich fertilizer that's bioavailable. That's the key. The downside to this is that it smells terrible. It's downright disgusting because fish emulsion is made from fish parts. When you're purchasing this fish emulsion, it also doesn't have a ton of natural microbes, which is why I have to add the EM1 at the same time that I'm adding in the fish emulsion. If you make your own fish emulsion with whole fish instead of leftover fish parts, 
then you can eliminate the EM1 at this stage because you're going to have all those microbes teeming. Now, when my plant roots have grown a lot further and they've actually filled that four inch pot that they've started in, they're ready for the garden. Whatever hardening off period you need to do or however you prep your plants for the outdoors should be part of your process. But once they're hardened off and they're ready for planting, you want to dig a hole, add your plant, backfill the hole three quarters of the way with soil, and then add a dry organic fertilizer in a ring in the hole. Finish backfilling the hole and cover up this fertilizer. And then you want to make sure that you have one little extra component of fertilizer on top. You want to add the EM1 and fish emulsion one more time when you water your plant. The organic fertilizer I use is blended by hand, and I use this for all of my plants. The recipe is on my blog, or you can find it in my rose pruning episode on YouTube. The recipe is for a single rose bush, but just use a cup of this mixture per young vegetable plant. This recipe promotes green growth, strong stems, blooms, and fruit production in my roses, which makes it ideal for other vegetable plants that produce fruit, like squash or tomatoes. I also use this on my stone fruit trees and my nut trees. Pretty much anything that's gonna produce fruit or blooms, I can use this. When you get really experienced with gardening, you can start playing with this recipe and manipulate it. For example, with my peppers, I will leave out parts of this recipe and fertilize later on with the bloom and fruit supporting nutrients. What I want for my peppers is to develop really strong stems, a lot of leafy growth. I want really big plants before I let them even think about flowering. And by tying up the nutritional profile of these plants with a lot of nitrogen and things that's gonna process first to do that, it's not gonna be concerned about producing blooms, it's going to focus on that leafy growth. And you can absolutely manipulate your plants in these types of ways by not having a fertilizer blend and focusing on individual pieces of the fertilizing process. Now, there's only one reason to do this. In my case, I have a lot of May rain, this tends to happen every year, where my plants are almost drowning and the roots are drowning. And if they're trying to support blooms and fruit at this time, they're going to be overwhelmed and overstressed. By not allowing them to bloom, not allowing them to fruit at this time of year, I'm actually reducing their stress, allowing them to get through that tough period of the rainy season, and they can go into summer unstressed. This is going to allow me to have a double crop one mid to late summer and again in late fall. So in this case, I work half as hard for a double crop. I only have to support plants one time and I get two seasons of growth. And I'm not just getting two seasons of growth, I'm getting growth and fruit production off of a giant plant instead of a tiny spindly plant that didn't grow enough and is only producing 10 or 20 peppers. I usually get about 100 to 500 peppers per plant by the time the double crop is over. Another thing I do with any of my double crops is I fertilize twice. I will fertilize in early spring, so February, March, when the plant is actually put into the ground, like I've mentioned, and then I'll fertilize a second time, and it will be after the first crop. So if my peppers, for example, are producing a crop in mid to late summer, I'll fertilize again in early fall or late summer so that the next crop can be supported. And in this case, I'll fertilize with the entire blend because that plant has already grown and become big and strong. And I do the same thing for my roses. They produce a double crop in April and October and I support them twice per year. So have I convinced you to become a root-focused gardener? 
Do you have a good understanding of what soil microbes are and how they benefit your plants? Do you feel confident to tackle this next gardening season by working smarter and not harder? Let me know what you think about this episode. All of my contact information is in the episode description.